RNMD is a show about hospital relationships from the perspective of doctors and nurses. You're very smart, and we know that you would never come to a podcast for medical advice. So obviously, call your non-podcasting doctor and nurse team if you need any medical care. Oh, and we should also mention that we don't represent any hospital at all, ever. Okay, start the thing. And welcome to RNMD, a show about doctors and nurses working together in this mad world of medicine. I'm Abby, your nurse host. I'm Laura, your doctor host. We, I always have, we, need, we, we need a better flow. I'm like, I'm going to have something to say today. And then I never do. I feel like I go to and like, and then I'm like, is she going to say it though? And then you're no, like, what am I supposed I'm to Laura. say? Like, <laughs> I'm Laura. What if I just like, don't I'm, say anything? It's like, I'm yeah. Abby, your nurse host. And then I'm like, Hello. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that would be kind of on brand for us. I don't know. Like, I'm Laura, your ghost host. Your ghost host. <laughs> yeah. Episode. Yeah. Your ghostess with the mostest hostess. <laughs> that was way too much. Okay. Sorry. That was a lot. All right. Welcome back, you guys. It's 2022. <laughs> yeah. What's up? Okay. We're all going to come in real quiet. <laughs> don't Nobody make any too fast. Don't make any sudden movements. Be really careful what you say. It's like the, a bad shift. Like don't say the, the Q word. Oh my God. We have a, there's a paper that examined um, whether the Q word made shifts busier or not. It's really funny. I'll pull it up for you. Oh my God. That's some Gen Z shit right there. It really is. Also, of course there's a paper and of course I've read it. Of course. Oh my God. That's so funny. Um, I feel like we need some good vibes for this year. So um, I don't know if anybody here listens to my brother, my brother and me. That's one of my favorite podcasts. Um, And they do a thing every year where they like pick a little rhyme or limerick for the year. um, And they use it as like their kind of chant for the whole year. And I (laughs) feel like their mantra. Yeah. I feel like we need a mantra for this year so that we can like get through it. So I was thinking we could talk about that a little bit today. Nobody say the quiet word. That's not yeah. it. Yeah. That's not it. 2020. Nobody, <laughs> nobody say this is our year. Yeah. <laughs> it's not our year, you guys. <laughs> it's it's not. Um 2022 just keep it keep it within you. Like keep the uh, No, keep that's the, terrible. <laughs> Keep the burden, keep the the pain, keep the sadness. Just keep it in you. Just scream into your own heart. Basically, this is this is not medical advice. Uh, you should definitely <laughs> see a therapist. Twenty twenty two, scream into the void. That's actually not I bad. Like, I don't mind that one. I feel like it needs a rhyme with twenty two. Okay, it has to rhyme. Uh, yeah, twenty twenty two. Don't let them see you. Yeah. Just don't like tell them in. you're here. Just really quietly walk through hell. Yeah. <laughs> this is hell. Yeah. My, my favorite um, are the ones that are like 2022. It's pronounced like 2022. And I'm like, oh, God damn it. Like, all right. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. No, we can't do this again. Oh, my God. Um, 2022. Maybe you need some new shoes. That's I mean, accurate. My shoes are full of COVID and blood, but... <laughs> Okay, All right, but we'll, you don't like that one. Uh, we'll workshop it. We'll workshop it. Okay, we're going to keep working on it. If you have a suggestion, send them to us about our mantra. We are clearly not poets. I did find this. This is not what we're here to talk about today, but I'm going to tell you about this study anyway because it's really funny. Okay. Uh, let's see. This is, we'll put it in the show notes. Does the word quiet really make things busier? Statistics versus superstition. A serious look at medicine's Macbeth. I love if, that. They, if they I have love to use that. the word serious, they're like, no, guys. A serious this was superstition. Seri- yeah. This was serious. It's like, well, that makes it seem a little suspect. <laughs> this is me, a real but- one. This We'll put yeah. this in the show notes because I love this paper. Uh, <laughs> but the quiet group contained 18 night shifts where the control groups contained 20, 
24 shifts and they basically said quiet during some of them and not during the others. And then they measured like the relative busyness. Uh, actually, there, oh, there are two of these papers. This is not the one I thought it was. The study has shown that when the word quiet was used, a significantly higher number of admissions occurred during a night on call period. <laughs> it's the first of its kind to demonstrate a cost neutral clinician focused method of reducing workload in hospitals. Uh, one can also conclude that avoiding the word quiet may even reduce the incidence of traumatic injuries and orthopedic emergencies within a hospital catchment area. <laughs> What? <laughs> I, this is the kind of research that I can get behind. Uh, <laughs> Who made quote, this? I, I, I'm gonna. Them. We're gonna put this in the show note. And also, if the authors of this want to be on this podcast, please call me. Uh, yeah. It is likely that the supernatural forces at work are beyond the grasp of even the most skilled orthopedic researchers. <laughs> Oh my god. It is possible that such mechanisms might entail mythical microparticles such as such as interleukins and prions, which may or may not exist in the real world. Oh my god, I love this so much. Mythical micro what? The, the best part of that is that interleukins and prions are real and orthopedic like the orthopedics are just making fun of themselves. I love this. It's really good. I really All right, this love is going this, this is going in the show notes. There are two of these. There's another one that says there is no correlation um, from a randomized controlled non-inferiority trial. Uh, we'll mm-hmm. put them both in the show notes. They're amazing. Okay. Um what okay, wait, hold on. That was not the point of this episode. What are we talking about today? <laughs> we actually do have a point, but first I want to say something else. Uh 2022, let's just get in the canoe. Like, we'll just ride it out. Like, we'll just real calm, slow, lazy river style. <laughs> you don't like that one. Okay. All right. <laughs> I like 2020, 2022. Don't get the flu. Okay. That's actually, right, yeah. Done. Okay. That's fair advice. That's good medical advice. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm done. 2022. Uh, we hate you. <laughs> 2022 we fucking hate you yeah we already hate you 20 that's the thing i think we were too optimistic about 2021 we're like this is gonna be better yeah it's gonna get better and then it was and like it no wasn't. fuck you guys so maybe yeah. 2022 we hate you we just come out the door like nope fuck you guys like and maybe it'll yeah. surprise us yeah we, set, we okay. set the bar low all right 2022 we fucking hate you <laughs> or, or we could try to be positive and be like 2022 just just eat some stew like just chill out have a big bowl of stew. It's good for your belly. And just wait, wait until the year's over. I feel like stew is not that good for your belly. Is it? Well, I also on. don't know. I also don't know the difference between soup and stew. All right. This has been a train wreck of an episode so far. All right. I'm from the Midwest. <laughs> I will teach you the difference between soup and stew. But but after before that, let's get to the episode. Okay. So we were going to talk about, especially because we have Laura as our new doctor host now, let's talk about why we give a shit about policy. Like what's up with us? Why are we so annoying? And why do we love this? And why are we kind of like into the same stuff? Like what's going on with that? Plot twist. We're only into this to be annoying. Um, end of episode. Yeah. That's the short and skinny of it. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> we're just like irritating think- people. And this is like a really, really low hanging fruit. It's ways to be annoying. I love being corrected by men who mm-hmm. have done less research on these topics than mm-hmm. me. That's so that's why I got into, um, you know, the podcast and putting my opinions on the Internet. <laughs> I really love when people say uh, great in theory, but um, and then oh, oh. and then cite something that is stupid. Yeah, I that's think my favorite. It, you know, I put this on my Instagram a little while ago. I think it's really important to point out that when we have certain um it's usually kind of education based or research based. And a lot of it is done by Anna and Laura. Did we already talk about this? That it's, it's usually when we are corrected, it's usually by a cis white man. And that is just something that I think, listen, draw your own conclusions. I'm not going to say anything about it. I'm just telling (laughs) you causation. Yeah. I'm just telling you an observation that I noticed that it's always a cis white man is the one who's like, well, actually, and I'm like, nobody else does this. Like, why do you do this? And usually it's a cis white man with less education in this issue than either of us. Yeah. So it's fine. Again, correlation, not causation. I had a guy one time I I was just I simply made a little video about how LPNs are still nurses, uh, licensed mm-hmm. practical nurse. And uh, I just wanted to show a little solidarity for the LPNs because I feel like they kind of get dumped on a lot and they're like not considered a real nurse, quote unquote, um, even though they have to take an NCLEX. And I had this anesthesiologist like 
mansplaining to me the scope of practice differences when I have been an LPN and he's like telling me about it and equating it to like the CNRA in his hospital or something. And I was like, sounds like you have an issue. Like, this is not my problem. Like (laughs) this is a you problem, not a me problem right now. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. It's, it's also the best thing about emergency medicine. It's like, well, don't you know you're supposed to do this? And I'm like, not in the ER. You're not sorry. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so, okay. So let's get into it. Why are you into policy? What made you get interested in this? Like baby Laura, like what happened? (laughs) So how far back do we want to go? Okay. So (laughs) Full origin story is I was a philosophy major and my parents wouldn't let me go to law school. And that's like sort of where I ended a lot of the time. Like, yeah, this is just like my way of getting back at my parents since they wouldn't let me go to law school is like, I'm going to derail my career to do political stuff as like a, <laughs> a, a backdoor way into the law and politics. This is how n- nerds rebel, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just doing this to spite my parents. Sorry, mom and yeah. dad. Uh, again, they're not <laughs> listening to this, so it's fine. Um <laughs> But that's, I mean, that is part of it. Like I did, um, so I got a philosophy degree. I worked with some, (laughs) it's no good way to phrase this, but with some grassroots anarchists who uh, (laughs) are fantastic and do like a lot of community organizing. Like my first like pivotal philosophy class that like made me actually care about philosophy was a class on anarchism, Mm -hmm. um, which also that came up a lot of my med school interviews and like it was like a thing they were like drawing the anarchist symbol on my paperwork and I'm like please don't do that like that's not yeah. helpful I did not get into that medical school I'm not going to say it's related but I, I kind of think it was uh, it might um, be yeah but anyway so like I you know I took some classes on um like community engagement kind of stuff and like basically the concept that people participating in their governance can actually have like really positive outcomes. I worked with some people who do a lot of community organizing uh, in the area. And then I went to medical school and I probably, I was just a terrible student in medical school and I have ADHD and I hated studying. So I did a lot of like community stuff in medical school. Like I worked at a lot of free clinics, which is like a whole separate episode about student run clinics, but not the point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did sort of a lot of, um, so the, the 2016 election was like in the middle of my medical school. So I actually started a couple of different um, student organizations sort of designed at um, increasing student engagement and like political grassroots action. Then I like sort of forgot about all of this when I started Impact or when we started Impact. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah I've actually done this a couple of times anyway. Yeah. Um, and then I did some stuff about um, like access to insurance through the Affordable Care Act. Like I trained as a healthcare navigator to help people sign up, sign up for insurance. So like I did some stuff and then I got through residency and I did some stuff that was sort of like teaching you how to be involved as a doctor in advocacy. And my frustration with that was like doctors are advocating for doctors. And I was like, that's not really the point. Like, I mean, I, right. I want to like be able to pay my loans and like practice the way I want to practice. But like ultimately we're in this because we want to advocate for, or we want to take care of patients. Right. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of where I deviated a little bit from the, um, organized medical groups of like, I don't want to advocate for emergency doctors for the sake of advocating for emergency doctors. I want to advocate, advocate for emergency doctors to be able to provide better patient care. And I feel like all of these organized medicine groups, like the AMA, um, the ANA, like all of these groups, AHA, all of these groups are like, oh, we have to, you know, doctors have to make more money because if not, they won't be doctors and the ERs will close and patients won't be able to access care. But like, it's... <laughs> To a certain extent, that's true, but it isn't really patient-centering. It's like using patients as an excuse to ask for the things that you want for for yourself. So that was really frustrating for me. Um, So that was like a long-winded backstory, but the like I was telling Abby the story a little bit earlier, um, the like actual moment where I was like, fuck, I need to do something with this um, beyond just like, you know, practicing clinically. Cause I had a patient like the end of my second year of residency who had like, he had already had a diagnosis of, um, of cancer like six weeks before. And he came into my ER at like two o'clock in the morning one night. And he was like, I got this diagnosis. I was told to see these specialists. I've been trying to get in, but this specialist said, I can't come in until I see the oncologist. The oncologist said, I can't come in until I have a biopsy. The, this person won't do the biopsy. This person won't do the biopsy. He had like mm-hmm. emergency Medicaid, I think was what he called or like something, you know, something like that. He had some sort of like low level insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was just like, he was just being bounced around between four different doctors at two different hospital systems. And everyone was like, Oh yeah, you have to go see this person first. And he just like, couldn't get care. Like he couldn't mm-hmm. get care. So this guy came in and he was like totally fine. Like he did not have an emergency medical condition. 
And I, but I wasn't that busy. So I spent literally two hours calling, like calling the other hospital, calling every on-call specialist we have. And I was like, someone needs to fucking take care of this guy. Like, this is stupid. Like he has his diagnosis and everyone's just putting up these barriers that are keeping him from accessing the care that we all know he needs. Like, this is not like everybody knows how this needs to go, but no one wants to take ownership of it. And no one wants to actually help this guy. And like, again, I have like, I have like a decent, I'd been at this hospital system for like a while, like a couple years. I knew people like I understand the healthcare system pretty well. And it took me two hours and I still, the best I could do was I got him an appointment at one clinic after two mm-hmm. hours of phone calls. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is bullshit. Like I cannot mm-hmm. go my entire career of having patients come into the emergency room with a metastatic cancer diagnosis and like me telling them they have, you know, they're probably going to die in the next six months and like having a goals yeah. of care discussion in the ER at two o'clock in the morning because this person hasn't been able to afford a primary care doctor in the past 20 years. Like that's like... Right. I don't mind doing that. And like, that's something that I, like, I work very hard on doing in a compassionate way, but like, that's not what I went into emergency medicine for. And I, so I sort right. of had this moment of like, I could either do this and burn out and get into a Botox clinic in 15 years and like right. make, make pretty good money doing that. Or I could right. like sabotage my financial, my financial potential and go get some more training and like try to actually change the system. So I don't burn out and I'll probably still burn out, but you know, we're going to burn out a different way and feel like we're at least trying to make something better. And that was sort of, I mean, that's a really long winded way to say I got tired and angry at the system. So I was like, fuck it. I'm gonna try to fix it. Right. Yeah. I, I totally relate to that. Um, what about you? I mean, I've had similar kind of patient experiences like that. Um, you know, I've mentioned before, I've worked at a lot of places that were Medicaid, Medicare was like the primary insurance for my patients. And that's where a lot of, um, my frustration with the system kind of comes from. But, um, I've mentioned this before that, you know, my grandma mainly raised me and, um, you know, I'm an only child and, uh, my grandma, you know, was very working class and, we didn't have a lot of money, but like we made it work. Like it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like we were living, you know, in this terrible condition or anything, but like money was very tight for us. Um, and my grandma worked a lot of different jobs. And, um, so when she got older and it was like very sudden, she went from like very, like carrying groceries home, walking blocks by herself, like completely independent, living alone, um, in like the spring and then by like October, like she couldn't even walk to the bathroom by herself. And it was like, it was really fast and really, it was very confusing. We didn't really know what was going on. None of the test results ever came up abnormal. We kept getting bounced around, like you're saying with specialists and telling us that everything looked normal, but she was losing weight really rapidly. She lost, I think she lost like 80 pounds in like nine months. And, um, and it, there was just a host of issues, you know, with her um, all of a sudden out of nowhere from like somebody who never took any medication ever. Um, and that's when I just realized, too, that like I, we had no support. Like we would go to um, the doctor and they're just like, it looks fine. And I'm just like, OK, I'm a 21 year old by myself caring for her. And I had just finished nursing school. So I was working full time for, you know, that was my first year out of school working full time. And now I'm, I'm trying to take care of her. Um, and it was like, nobody ever gave us like a social worker or like home care or anything. It was just like, they would, we would go home. And then I was just sit, I would just sit there and be like, I don't know how to do this. Like, I don't know how to leave her alone. Like I can't Mm -hmm. even go to work. Like, I don't know how to do that. Um, and it got to be where it was unsafe. I was paying like cash to some of my colleagues, like the CNAs that I worked with to go like check on her while I was at work. And it got to be where it was not safe even for that. Like she could not be, she couldn't get up out of bed by herself. Mm -hmm. And so I was working at a long-term care facility. That was my, you know, my first job. And I, um, you know, she, I think she had fell at one point, something she was in the hospital. And anyway, we brought her what we thought was going to be temporarily to the nursing home that I was working at. And so she was there, she was safe. I could check on her when I was in there. Um, and then, you know, she got progressively worse and she was not able to go home and she eventually passed away. Um, and, and that was like from, that was like, 
little over a year from like when she started to have symptoms to like when she passed away. It, it just went so fast. And, um, the thing is when we were, you know, it really, it really hit me when I, we just saw in the news recently with these tornadoes where you're, um, in Kentucky where you're seeing these factory workers who were told they're going to be fired if they don't, if they don't stay. And that there was a text chain between some Amazon driver saying like, they're telling us to, you know, shelter in place. And like, I, I can't be out here and they're telling him he's going to be fired if he, you know, if he doesn't complete his route for that day. Um, mm-hmm. Something really similar happened to me. I was uh, working in this place. I had, I uh, was working in the Alzheimer's dementia unit. I had 25 patients to myself, brand new grad. I had a huge med pass around maybe 8 PM, something like that. And my grandma started to actively die Um, she was relatively unconscious and she had agonal breathing and, um, it just became really obvious that she wasn't going to make it. Um, and she was, she was not, she was not really awake, but she was yelling my name, um, in her room and, you know, the other nurse or maybe a CNA from the, where the side where she was on came and got me and just said like, you know, she's asking for you. Um, and like, to me, it was like, okay, my shift is over. Like I, you know, I'm, I'm scheduled to 11 or whatever, but like, no, like this, I need to go sit with my grandma, you know? And I, I go to like the other nurses and, you know, essentially say like, look, I'm halfway through my bed pass, but like I'm done, you know? And they wouldn't accept the keys from me because they had their own, you know, patients. There's nobody there. Uh, the managers aren't there, et cetera. I call, Uh, the people and I just told them what's going on, you know, and I was told like, I have to finish the med pass. And the implication was that I would be cited for patient abandonment if I didn't do that. Now I'm still in the building, right? I'm not going to leave, but I need to go sit with my family member. You can't call somebody to get them in or, you know, it was just like Mm -hmm. this wild thing. Um, and then at the end of it, uh, she did pass away and she passed away on the 7th of July and they, one, they said that their policy was to, if the patient is there for seven full days, they charge for a month's stay. That was their policy. Yeah. So my job, I wouldn't pay a month's stay because she died on the seventh. I'm not paying you for a full month. She wasn't there for a month. Um, I paid them for all the other months. Um, and again, being a 21 year old trying to navigate this stuff. Right. And, um, and they, um, eventually they sued me. <laughs> they, my job sued me for it, oh, um, for that good. money. Yeah. And, um, and you know, my grandma was, I finished that med pass and my grandma was calling out for me and I finished it. Um, and like, nobody really seemed to care. Nobody really seemed to understand how difficult that was. You know, this person who like raised me from when I was a baby needs my help. And then, you know, so, I guess it's just, you know, I already felt this way, but that experience with her was just like, it's, it's not just from the patient side, I guess it's from Mm -hmm. both sides. I really felt it. I felt like she was not getting good care. She was getting bounced around. Nobody had an answer for her, um, because her insurance didn't pay out very much and nobody really took the time. We couldn't get her into certain specialists. And then, um, you know, by time she was so sick, we, we couldn't even physically go to some of these appointments. And then, you know, at the end of the day, the job prioritized that med pass over me and her saying goodbye, you know, which is pretty wild. That's just so like incredibly dehumanizing as, as a, not like as a healthcare worker, obviously, but like as a person, like, yeah, that they would treat anybody with that little dignity, but especially like one of their patients and one of their workers with that little like human decency is like kind of horrifying. Yeah, that's pretty horrifying. <laughs> yeah. And like, I mean, I feel like nursing homes are and like long term care is like an is an episode in and of itself. Um, yeah. But like, I feel like that's like a really big thing that. I mean, I, I care about patient access and I care about like my patients being able to access care. But this is something we talk about a lot with impact of like none of us are going to provide good care if we aren't respected as human beings. And like that just highlights that. Like, I mean. 
Yeah. How the fuck are you supposed to care for 25, 25 patients at any time? It's ridiculous. But like, how are you supposed to provide like compassionate care when you're like, you can hear your grandmother screaming out? Like, that's not, no one's right. getting good care. Like, that's not good for you as a worker and that's not good for your patients. Right. Exactly. I mean, you think that my mind is on how many milligrams this thing is or whatever. It it was certainly Whoa. on how fast can I get through this med pass? Like yeah, I cool, was here. not... Take- Take these meds. Right. I don't care. Whatever. Right. Yeah. Okay. It, it it was possibly unsafe for my patients. Yeah. Like I, I was not considering them in that moment at all. I was just like, how fast can I get this done? Because then I can tell them like, then there's absolutely no reason why I can't go sit with her because my, my job here is essentially done. Like they can, yeah. somebody else can sit here and babysit, but I, I, my job is done. So like, yeah. um, yeah, I mean, that was like terribly, unsafe for my patients too yeah of course yeah, that's just bad that's literally bad for everybody who is not directly making money off of you like that's yeah. the only person that wins in that situation is the person that's making money which is yeah, not us yeah right exactly yeah i mean i was making like 17 bucks an hour or something like that at yeah. that time it's like ridiculous yeah yeah um so yeah i just feel like and then you know like i think we've all been through this like prior authorization mm-hmm. issue and you know trying to get your patient home oxygen or something and that mm-hmm. you can't get it and um seeing people readmitted for things that you could easily solve i mean it's just like yeah. what's going on here even, <laughs> why are even we doing in the ER, just like admitting patients for like pt placement basically like rehab placement like this is yeah. a huge waste of resources that i have to admit this patient for three days because they can't take care of themselves at home and i can't directly get them to a nursing facility like really like right. that's why we're doing this like right. we're gonna waste a couple you know several thousand dollars to bring this patient in because i'm not allowed to send a patient directly to a rehab facility even if i have a physical therapist in the department like exactly yeah it's just really like wild. who the fuck built this? Like who built these know. systems? Who thinks this is a good idea? Cause like, it's no one who's ever seen a patient ever. No. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's the problem. They don't understand the workflow at all. And they're business people at the end of the day, you know, they're not, yeah. they're not clinicians. So I don't know. It's weird. Cause I just wrote this paper on um, like how patient satisfaction scores and like patient ratings of their patient providers, they don't correlate to outcomes and they don't correlate to like the, like the stars ratings that various organizations give hospitals. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, what are we, what are we trying Why? to do? Like, are we trying yeah. to provide patient satisfaction or trying to provide patient care or trying to provide magnet status or trying to be like, Oh, we're an academic. Like what is the goal? Because none of these things that we're like, real like the h cap stuff doesn't mm-hmm. really correlate no. to do patients have better outcomes or do we have lower costs do we have like you know more patient-centered care are we eliminating racial disparities like they're not right. connected they just don't right. like they might like maybe they might correlate with one or two of those things and then you go to a different rating system and it has no correlation with those things at all right. so exactly you know, all these ways of like we're trying to say that we're providing good care are just bullshit and like they're they're decentering the patient they're decentering decentering the providers yeah they're i mean they're centering the reimbursement i think Mm -hmm. that's really what it comes down to right and how they do that is by these uh standards which are really arbitrary and they're not Mm -hmm. set by people who are actually seeing patients so it's like all this stuff is so i mean we we could i'm not gonna bore y'all but like we could get into all the dumb shit (laughs) that nursing has to do like that is not a nursing job and like anything new that they add to that Jayco score or whatever, that's all piled onto the nursing tasks and they're not nursing tasks, you know, yeah. like check, checking to see if the shit's expired or not in the cabinet and you know, all this stuff. It's like, I don't know, like figure it out. I don't, this is not my job. Like what's going on? Why is this my thing to do? You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I've got a couple articles up about in my browser about this right now that I have not read. So we're not going to try to talk about them right now, but like none of these things are actually, I mean, they're important. They're, they're important, but they're not actually about patient care. Like right. so much it's veiled. Yeah. It's billing or it's medical legal stuff. It's not actually like, how are we going to make this a better functioning facility? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I feel like, wouldn't you want to increase, you want to talk about patient satisfaction, increase the time the nurse has with the patient, 
I think that would increase the scores. I mean, if somebody feels like they actually have a nurse looking out for them, great. I mean, I see it all the time. It's happened to me, unfortunately, where the patient hits the call bell, nobody comes to see them for 15, 20 minutes. And the family is in there like, what the hell? Like, what have you been doing? They they think we're sitting in the back with our feet up, you know? Yeah, yeah. But you're playing cards, duh. Yeah, Um, yeah. But it's like crazy. And like one of the things, so you mentioned it a minute ago about... um, a lot of the stuff we're doing is about getting the hospital paid. So like, you know, hospital reimbursement is tied to stuff like what are our 30 day readmissions and are we in compliance with giving every heart attack patient an aspirin? And like some of those things like the aspirin thing. Okay, cool. That is like a clinical evidence-based thing that yes, Mm -hmm. we should be aspiring to give all of our patients an aspirin, but Mm -hmm. then like, a lot of it, like, so one of the things they look at is like readmissions after hip replacements or readmissions after pneumonia or a heart failure exacerbation. And like mm-hmm. some of it, it's just more, it's more complicated than just a readmission. Like, okay, if I'm at a hospital that discharges people really quickly because I'm always, you know, on red or on bypass or whatever, and like, I have to get these beds out. Like you're acknowledging that sometimes these, pe- these people are going to come back and you're just like doing your best because you have to, like you have no right. resources. So then right. the way like the way it works is like um like CMS reimburses less to these facilities that have higher than predicted rates of um readmissions. They mm-hmm. do con- they do control some for like um the medical complexity of the patient. So like if you have a really sick person and your odds of them being readmitted are 90%, then like okay, you maybe don't get penalized for them be, uh, read like being readmitted. But at the same time, the sort of the, the point I'm making with this is that we're tying a lot of a lot of things to reimbursement and we're tying mm-hmm. a lot of things to money. And like this sort of goes back to impacts like, you know, approach to, to advocacy and approach to change, especially in healthcare, people don't respond to financial incentives very well. And like, we see this right. in a lot of things. Like they've done studies of like, <laughs> there was a study where they, um, they put a fee, like if you were late to pick up your kids from daycare, like you just had to pay a fee. And and the number of parents that picked up their kids late, like tripled or something. Cause it was like, oh, oh like it's God. only it's only 20 bucks. So like it must not be that big of a deal if I'm late. It's only 20 bucks. So like it increased, like it, it made the bad outcome that they were trying to prevent. It made it more common because it was like, oh, it's just a fine, you right. know? Right. Like it takes the human element out of it. And that's sort of what we're doing in healthcare is like we're putting these financial financial incentives on things because we're like, oh, like people will do things differently if they think they're going to get rewarded or if they think they're going to get fined. And like it doesn't work like this has like been pretty well researched of like it's not an effective way to change behavior. Mm-hmm. So why does our entire healthcare system revolve around financial penalties like the carrot stick thing like. Right. It doesn't work. Exactly. We know it doesn't work. It like it really has not worked very much in anything that they I mean this, it has helped a little bit in some things, but for the most part this is like not an effective way to drive change. Right, exactly. So I guess it just comes back to again like then why are we doing it, you know? What <laughs> what's going on with it? Because MBAs are running healthcare and not people who know what they're talking about. Yeah, essentially. Hmm. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean, we have to figure out a way. I guess that's the strength with impact, hopefully, in the future, is that we're going to have the numbers to kind of back some of this up and say, like, look, we don't want it to be like this, you know? Um, I think the, uh, I don't think I've talked about the legislation for New York State for staffing, right? Um, so just real quick, the New York State. Uh, as of January 1st, 2022 is going to have uh, committees in every single hospital and 50% of their committees, it's for staffing committees and 50% of their staff has to be uh, clinical. And that means techs, that means LPNs, that means RNs um, and 50% of it is going to be management. And, you know, that's not a perfect system, right? It's not perfect, but it's a step in the right direction because I mean, essentially what it's saying is that we have a right to have input on some of these things like staffing. And I think Mm -hmm. that's the direction we really need to start heading in is like, we need to have a route. We advocate all the time for our patients, but that's not Mm -hmm. enough. We need to have the route to um, be listened to and actually implement change, which is what we've been lacking, especially nursing, because we do not get a seat at the table most of the time. So when you were saying that I like zoned out for 12 seconds or something or misunderstood or something. Cause I was like, I thought what I thought you were saying for a second was that like 
half, not just on these committees, but like in the hospital, half of staff had to be clinical. And I was like, oh my God, that would be amazing. If we like got rid of some of these fucking like coders and just had more, like we paid more clinical staff instead of paying so many coders. Like I saw a statistic recently that like, I think it was the Duke hospital system has more coders who are in charge of like billing and reimbursement than they do hospital beds. And I was like, wow. Oh shit. Like, okay. Yeah. So for, I I know that was not the point that you were making, but I was like, oh my God, that would be amazing. And like, how sad is that? That I was like, it would be amazing if we just had more clinical providers than we did administrators. Like, and I mean, yeah, like realistically we probably do, but like, I think you've done an episode about this before. And I actually saw a graphic about this um, earlier today of like the rate of rise of hospital administrators relative to like from the 1990s to today as like relative to the like the physicians went up by like this much and the administrators went up by this much and the costs went up by this much. Like, yeah, Laura, I was, I was acting that out. So yeah, wild, wild gestures with her hands. Yeah. Yeah. So physicians Um, went up by a little bit and administrators went up by like 500% and costs also went up by a lot. Like, so maybe it's not the increase in physicians, maybe the increase in administrators and administrative bloat has something to do with this. I don't know though. So in, I think I've actually, I've said this before in one of these episodes, but yeah, it's uh, 2017 top executives at six of the nine largest Chicago area non-for-profit healthcare systems pocketed substantial raises and their average pay hike was 37%, easily outpacing national trends. Um, And, you know, one of these interesting things, which is something that Laura and I are really dealing with right now is... um, do you qualify for 501c3, which all of these in this study, they did qualify. So they are technically nonprofits uh, and and they're getting a 37% raise, which, um, you know, the unions even, they're getting maybe a, over a three-year contract, they're what? getting maybe like 6% or something like that. So, I mean, and like, that's a difference. And like, we're not, this is the thing that is like so frustrating. Cause like, we're not at all saying that like, if you work for a nonprofit organization, you don't deserve a salary and you don't deserve right. a fair salary. But like, if you're working as a hospital administrator with a, you know, like an undergrad degree and maybe a two year MBA, like do you, and you are in meetings all day and you're doing fundraising all day. Do you deserve to make literally like 200 times the salary of people who have been working in the front lines at risk themselves for the past two years during a pandemic. Like I'm going to say no, no. like you're not actually producing like if we just look at this. Yeah. If you look at this as far as how much money do we actually make for the hospital? How much Mm -hmm. value do we provide? How many lives do we like individually save? Like you're not paying this Mm -hmm. appropriately. Like, yeah. And you can make a salary. You can make a fair salary. You sure. can live well, but like it needs to be commensurate to your value and it's just not. Right. Right. And my thing, and I don't want to beat a dead horse because this is in a different episode, but um, <laughs> my thing is if you are doing such a great job, like that, that statistic, it was talking about bonuses specifically too, right? If you're doing such a good job at running your hospital system that you deserve a bonus, then that hospital you cannot turn around and claim poverty later when we're talking about staffing. It's one or the other. Like you're doing such a great job that you deserve a raise and also you can pay your staff appropriately. Otherwise you guys are poor and you don't get a bonus. Yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah. If you can't afford to hire appropriate staffing, you don't deserve a bonus. You're not raising enough money. Do better. Right. Do better. Yeah. Be better at your job. If that's what it is that like we're talking about this capitalist approach to healthcare, then that means that you need to produce, right? So produce. Otherwise, bye. No bonuses (laughs) until we have safe staffing. Sorry, guys. That, yeah, that, that could be a, that could be something. We're going to write that something. Yeah. Yeah, That's something. Yeah. That's something. That's Um, That's a mass media campaign, I think. Yeah, definitely. We need a billboard, I think. We got to get a billboard. <laughs> Eventually, at some point, I want to get a billboard. Um, oh, you know, Laura, too, there's this thing coming up where they are talking. There was a law, I believe it was enacted in 2020. Weirdly, I'm pretty sure Trump was driving this law of like where hospitals had to be more transparent about their costs. Mm-hmm. Have you heard about this? Yeah, there's a lot of talk about cost transparency. Yeah. It's already went through, if I'm not mistaken, right? 2021, I think it went in, it was implemented. There's like a lot of talk and there's a, one of the really big faults in um, in a lot of healthcare, in health insurance, in direct healthcare is there is no transparency about price. And like, this is sort right. of why the free market economy principle fails in healthcare because there's so much information 
information asymmetry. Like patients don't know what healthcare they need. Like they don't, that's why they go to a doctor is because they do not know what they need. So like doctors exactly. and hospital systems are the ones that are telling them what they need. And then they're also the ones that are benefiting from like financially benefiting from providing care. So there's like a perverse incentive to provide more care than you need. It's information asymmetry where like patients can't shop for a better, like a more cost-effective insurance plan. You can't shop for a more cost-effective doctor. You can't even shop for a more cost-effective hospital because there is no standardization or availability of these prices anywhere. So like this is a problem not just in is not just in the, like choosing hospitals or choosing doctors, it's a problem in choosing insurance plans, it's a problem in choosing like pharmacy like drugs. Yeah. And like yeah. there's not no one's no one's making us do it. Like Yeah. Yeah. All right. right. Re- yeah. Read read us okay. the research you pulled up. Okay. Um wait, first of all, real quick, I just want to say what about 2022? Wahoo. I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no to that one. I respect your enthusiasm and I'm going to veto it. <laughs> okay. I just thought it like, it's not like wahoo. It's like, it's like little, it's quiet. It's like, it's like passively optimistic. Wahoo. No, we're not, we're okay. not bringing any optimism to this year. That backfired on us. All right, fine. We're, we're going to be okay. cynical. We're going to be cynical bastards and hope we're surprised. <laughs> fine. Okay. According to CMS, uh, high, uh, eh. hospital price transparency helps Americans know the cost of a hospital item or service before receiving it. Starting January 1, 2021, each hospital operating in the U.S. will be required to provide clear, accessible pricing information online about the items and services they provide in two ways. Number one, as a comprehensive machine-readable file with all the items and services. Number two, in a display of shoppable services in a consumer-friendly format. Um, This will make it easier for consumers to shop and compare prices across hospitals and estimate the cost of care belonging to the hospital. Now, I don't know of any hospital that's doing this yet. Mm -hmm. Do you? No. I don't either. And like the thing with that is it also varies because like there have been a couple of articles about this this year. The um, prices vary dramatically Mm-hmm. based on like not even w- between like within hospital systems based on insurance. So like if you're right. out of pocket, like cash pay price is $700, your blue cross blue shield price might be $2,000. Your Medicare price might be $400. Like, right. So, and the thing is they can't like, they can't publish that. The hospital cannot publicly announce that oh, our prices vary this much because the second they do blue cross blue shield is like, okay, cool. We're not going to pay to And like, yeah, right. Okay. That's fair. But like, yeah, so that's the argument that I think I saw that the AHA is mm-hmm. making in combination yeah. with the American Medical Association is that it's going to cause price gouging from insurance companies and mm-hmm. I just feel like they're approaching it in the way wrong uh, uh, the way wrong way. Like it's like mm-hmm. yeah, that's probably true, but like now go after those insurance companies. Like why don't we put a law on them and like start regulating them? Like this is not you can't just say, well, the patient doesn't deserve to know how much this is going to cost now. I mean, it's insane. I mean, the problem is that um, for the most part, Medicare, Medicaid, I, Medicare sometimes pays more. But for the most part, so I think the statistic is that private hospital and hospital, no, private insurance companies pay 247% of Medicare rates, right? Mm-hmm. Like Medicare does not pay very well for a lot of hospital mm-hmm. services. For some of them, it does. Like for some of them, it pays appropriately for the amount of skill and resources and time involved. And for some of them, it doesn't. So there's been like a lot of conversations about if we have this transparency of how much Medicare is paying, then insurance is going to be like, cool, we're also only going to pay $400 for this procedure we used to pay $2,000 for. And then doctors and hospitals get really mad about that, which like, you know, understandably, because if we're assuming that Medicare has been undervaluing this care, then Mm -hmm. saying that everyone is going to be allowed to undervalue this care does sort of threaten like the viability of the healthcare system. So then Mm -hmm. there's like a lot of discussions of like, okay, so what, how do we set the prices? Do we tie it to like the average price in the area of like, and this also varies, do we do it federally? Do we do it regionally? Do we do it like by state? How do we set Mm -hmm. these prices? Or do we do it like, it gets really in the weeds. Like there's some stuff about like tying it to the second lowest benchmark price. Like it gets really complicated and it's all, it's all rooted in profit because like all these hospitals are like, yeah, we're not going to accept Medicare prices from everyone because it's like, we're not gonna be able to keep the lights on if we do that. Mm -hmm. But like, it basically comes down to, we don't all have the same insurance or any insurance at all. So Mm -hmm. we're just charging these random unpredictable prices. Yeah. The other thing, this is like a little bit off topic. Sorry. I just wrote several papers about this. I'm 
It's okay. I forgot to put arms about it. But the other thing that like, as you were reading this to me, um, having a price, um, upfront, like when you come into the hospital, you're told how much this is going to cost is a little bit of a dangerous thing, to be honest. Like, so this is something we talk about in the ER a lot of like, you know, when people call and they're like, Hey, how long is the wait in the ER? We never tell them like, we aren't like, I'm pretty sure it's under MTALA. Like, yeah, you're not allowed. I think. Yeah. We don't tell them because it's like, if you're like, Oh, it's eight hours. So I'm not going to come to the ER. So then they don't come in and they don't get like a set of eyes on them to be like, Oh shit. Like you actually need to be first back. It's like sort of a, it's sort of a threat to the patient if they Mm -hmm. know that like, Oh, I'm going to have to wait eight hours or, Oh, like it's going to cost me $2,000 to get this chest pain work up. Then cool. I'm just going to leave. Like Mm -hmm. that's going to be kind of bad for patient outcomes until we have price protections. Like until we have Medicare for all or, you know, universal healthcare, that's just like, yeah, you can come in and you're going to get healthcare and we're going to take care of it. Exactly. It's dangerous, honestly. Like it's, it's a, it's a bandaid that's going to cause more problems than it's going to fix. Yeah, they definitely, it has to be done in tandem, right? You Mm -hmm. have to also give people uh, the tools to not go into bankruptcy because of their medical debt. You you have to have both. You can't just say, well, we're going to tell you how much it is, right? And then (laughs) they're like, cool, I don't don't have $160,000, so like I'm not coming in. Yeah, Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's pretty it's pretty obvious that the whole system is broken. And so I guess it just, it goes back to like, why did we get into policy? Like, why do we get into this? Because I I could be wrong, but I feel like the only way to find change is through policy change. I mean, these, all of these things, the drug companies, the insurance companies, the hospital systems, they all need more regulation and it will yeah. be done through policy change. Yeah. And like the thing for me is that like as a doctor, I don't necessarily want actually I'm going to take the necessarily out of that. I don't want someone who has never seen a patient making decisions on how I should see patients. Like I'm not Mm -hmm. like I'm a salaried position. Like I am not fee for service personally. The, Mm -hmm. you know, institutions I work for obviously still are because that's how healthcare works. But like I still want to be able to practice medicine the way I think is appropriate with my eyes on the patient. You know, I, that's Mm -hmm. important to me. Um, Mm -hmm. and I feel like we're at a point where healthcare is it's, it's broken. Like it's not even breaking anymore. It is broken. It's about to crumble Mm -hmm. if it's not currently crumbling. And like something is going to have to change over the next 10 years. Like it's, it, it it just is, or we're the entire thing's going to collapse. And I want to be in a position where I can be like, okay, cool. Like these are the actual issues that are facing providers that are facing patients that like are making it impossible for us to provide good care. Like I want to have a voice in that conversation and not have that decision made for me. Cause I feel like for a really long time, these decisions have been made by, you know, the CEOs and the organized medical organizations. And I want it to be made by us. I agree. And it it also, I feel like it's not just healthcare. I got a comment today when I was talking about, you know, um, we've been required to get this BSN, this bachelor's degree, and um, it just drove us deeper into debt, essentially, Mm -hmm. just so that the hospital can get a better reimbursement and more clout, really, um, and that we were forced to do that. Basically, we were forced to go into debt. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. we would not be able to work at the hospital anymore. Um, And somebody made a comment who's not a nurse and said that's almost every occupation. I mean, for our generation, I mean, that's really what happened. And then, you know, I read something today. It said the, the lowest, um, the people are buying homes at the lowest rate in decades right now because they can't afford it. The, the housing market skyrocketed. We're all saddled with all this debt. We're tethered to our jobs for our health insurance. We could at any moment have medical debt, Um, and then it's like, well, how come millennials aren't having kids and how come they don't have a a house? And it's like, we want those things. I want those things. I just, the world is ending. Yeah. It's like, it's like, it almost feels like what you're saying of like these people before us and above us have made all of these decisions because they're about to be out. They don't Mm -hmm. care if it crumbles. They don't care. They're just like, bye. And they just leave us with this. And and then we're just sitting here like, what the hell just happened? I'm in my 30s now. And like, I haven't even really started my life yet. You know what I mean? Yeah. That was like the wildest thing, like finishing residency of like, oh, cool. So I graduated when I was 28 and I was like, cool. I have literally done nothing but go to school and accumulate debt for 28 years. Like, 
Yeah. They really played yeah. me into thinking this was like a sustainable life. The other thing I, um, I don't know if I sent it to you this morning or not, but I saw a tweet this morning and had like a full crisis because someone tweeted, <laughs> um, I think if they forgave student debt, healthcare workers would just leave in mass. And I was like, oh fuck, they're never going to forgive my student debt yeah. because they know if they forgive yeah. physicians, student debt, all of us are going to quit immediately. Like yeah. the only thing that's not true. I love my job, but like it's like a really big thing for a lot of people that like the only thing keeping them in their careers is like, all right, I can't pay off half a million dollars of loans any, right. any other way. Like I've got to be a doctor, like otherwise I'm fucked. Right. So yeah, right. like they're, they're not going to forgive our student debt because the debt's a weapon. Like you have to keep yeah. working for your hospital if you're going to pay off that debt. It's intentional. Right. Yeah, it is intentional. And I think that's important that we start acknowledging that and saying that on this podcast, that this stuff has been thought out. There are people who are aware of those. They understand the position that we're in and they're not making any, um, whether they were directly involved in setting it up or not, they have not tried to change it and forgive debt or something. And that is a planned thing that benefits somebody, certainly not us. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, that's, I'm like, for, forgive my debt and make this a job that I actually want to work in because it's not toxic and I'm, I'm supported and I have resources and my patients can access care. Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's so crazy. Um, okay. You have any closing, um, possible mantras and we can readdress them next, next time. Mm, 2022. Tw- what fresh hell is this? <laughs> That doesn't rhyme. It's got to rhyme. It doesn't have to rhyme. Yeah. It has to okay. rhyme. What in the fresh uh, hell? No. <laughs> it's got to rhyme. It's got to be like nonsensical. Okay, wait. What about Scooby Dooby Doo? <laughs> or just we have eat Scooby snacks every day? I'm cool with that. Yeah. That sounds That's a great. Good one. Yeah. What about um, 2022? Ooh. Like when you kiss on TV when you're watching Sabrina? I'm not making that noise with you. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I will not. <laughs> or Boy Meets World. You're too young for that show, probably. I right? love Boy Meets World. I have it on uh, oh. DVD. I don't have a DVD player, but I do have it on DVD. <laughs> 2022. Uh, now what do we do? <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's it. Now what do we do? That's right, it. We, we, we have to stop it. recording. We're done. Bye, guys. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>